again, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 on page 844 in the Sanctuary Bibles. Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. To God in prayer, ask for his help as we encounter his word. Heavenly Father, just like these disciples could never have forced Jesus to reveal himself to them like he did, we need you to reveal yourself to us this morning. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, uh, with the eyes of our heart, the eyes of faith, that you would let us see what those disciples saw, that our minds would be filled and our hearts would be full of the revelation of Jesus and what he means um, in who he is and what he does for us in our lives, how we need to trust him. So Lord, we look to you for this. I pray for your help to teach this passage faithfully. Lord, please help me. And I pray for each one of us listening that you help us Focus, you'd help us understand, you'd help us believe, you'd help us live in light of this truth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're continuing right through our study of the gospel of Mark. Just to remember, Mark's an associate of the apostle Peter. Mark wrote this gospel, so from, from Peter's eyewitness testimony, it's about 30 or 40 years after the life of Jesus. It's not myth, it can't be legend, it's too early an eyewitness account. And this morning, Mark really is telling us about one of the most surprising miracles in the Bible. It's hard enough to understand it, right? What's going on? And I think it's even more difficult to know what to do with it once we do understand it. So I I spent a lot of time pondering this passage this week, and I couldn't help but see how it arises out of the expectation of suffering, so all around this passage, Jesus tells you he's going to suffer. So I was like, no, you won't. Then there's the presence of evil and suffering. Then he tells his disciples again, the Messiah is going to suffer. All around this passage, the context 
of suffering. So just to back up, Mark's gospel is about answering these questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is he? Number two, what did he come to do? Number three, how should I respond? So last week we saw Jesus' disciples finally begin to take it in who Jesus is. Remember, Peter said, you're the Christ. It's an enormous title, right? Christ means God's promised king. He's gonna save his people. He's gonna judge evil. He's gonna renew the world. It's enormous. Jesus, you're the Christ. They finally start to get it. But then Jesus immediately drops on them what he came to do first. You remember what it was? The son of man must suffer. I'm going to a cross. And and then we saw the disciples were obviously just totally floored by this. In fact, Peter even rebuked Jesus. In one breath, he goes from saying, you may be the Christ to the next breath, you're wrong. You may be the Christ, you're wrong about the suffering. That's what he says. Jesus' disciples did not want to hear that the Christ would suffer. They, they nearly couldn't hear it. They were so deeply wrapped up in these expectations that when the Christ came, it would mean glory, right? Enemies defeated, problems solved. The idea that the Christ would be rejected and suffer and that his followers might suffer as well, it just, it just couldn't be, right? They, they can't hear it, won't hear it. So in the context of our passage today, the disciples are still just reeling from this idea of suffering. And like I said, this passage is surrounded by predictions of Jesus' suffering. Jesus even said in the words we looked at last week, if you want to belong to him, you've got to take up your cross. So there's a way to, in being a Christian, suffering is a part of your path. So then you remember Of course, this theme is incredibly important to Mark. Who's he writing? Well, he's in Rome. He's writing Christians in Rome. What's what's their life like? They're suffering under the persecutions of the Emperor Nero. He's lighting up some Christians as torches for his parties. He's throwing some Christians to the beasts. So to to be a Christian in that context is to be slandered by your society, hated by your society, maybe even tortured or killed, all for not being ashamed of Jesus or his words. So I think Mark has his finger on a pulse. He's taken Peter's account in mind, Jesus' Jesus predictions of suffering, how the disciples struggled with that, and and then Peter, Mark, they see what Jesus was doing. Because here's what we're supposed to do with this story. This passage is about what we need to see in order to endure suffering. That's what it's about, I think. It's what we need to see in order to endure suffering. We don't really like to think about it, but as many of you know very well, at some point we have to. Life is going to bring suffering. And some of you are thinking, wow, Matt, your education is really shining through here. Uh, Thank you, Captain Obvious. Life is going to bring suffering. But maybe even more difficult than the suffering itself is having the right perspective on suffering. Why do some people um, seem to thrive through suffering, others get bitter? Why do some people seem to quit at suffering, others endure? Why are some people hopeful in suffering, others despair? It has to do in some ways with their perspective. It's what what they see about suffering. So think of the questions we ask in suffering. Is my suffering meaningful? Oh, the despair of thinking your suffering is meaningless. Or uh, is my suffering worth it? Is there light at the end of the tunnel or is it just a tunnel? Will it end in something good? It's so important because our perspective on suffering makes an enormous impact on our enduring in suffering. And it all depends on what we can see about Jesus and about our suffering. I think that's what this passage is about. So Lord willing, 
Jesus here, I think Jesus here shows his disciples what they need to see in order to endure suffering, and I hope we'll see some of the same things. I have five things I hope we'll see today. Number one, we're just going to look at some background from the story of the Exodus that is just so, um, so much of that in this story this morning. So background of the story of the Exodus. Number two, we need to see who Jesus is. Number three, we need to see how the cross is the plan. Number four, we need to see Jesus' loving authority. And number five, I just want us to close with an example of his power in our suffering. Background from the Exodus, see who Jesus is, how the cross is the plan, his loving authority, an example of his power in our suffering. So here we go. We start with Mark 9, verse 1. That's on page 844 in your church Bibles. Love it if you'd follow along. Mark 9, 1, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So just to remember, the disciples, they're hoping for glory. They're longing for glory, this reign of the Christ. And then Jesus tells them about suffering and shame and loss and a cross. His disciples are taken aback deeply. But Jesus here lets them know, listen, suffering's not the end. In fact, some of you are going to see that glory and power with your very eyeballs. You're going to see what you're longing for even better than you dreamed. So we ask, well, when does that happen? When do some of these people see that? And I'll be honest, there's a variety of theories, but I'll I'll tell you what I think is the best one. I think the best theory is just to look to verse 2. And this event that happens on the mountain, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So when Mark gives you like a time period, he's, he's tying one verse to the other. He's saying he said that, and then it's tied to this event. I think there's a connection there. Not only that, he took Peter, James, and John. So there's some of them. And, and even though there's going to be suffering, they're still alive. They get to see it right here, and he takes them up to a high mountain wants to show them something. Well, why a high mountain? I mean, some of us were like, we don't need a why. I like to go on mountains. Amen, right? That's, that's where I want to go on vacation every summer. Take me to a mountain. There's always far more to it than that. And that's why we need to think about the background of the Exodus. If you remember the, the biblical storyline, there's this, the, the key event in the Old Testament is the Exodus, right? Israel was enslaved in Egypt, And God comes, he keeps his promises to them, powerfully delivers them from the most powerful nation on earth, saves them from slavery into the freedom of knowing and belonging to him. He raises up Moses. Moses mediates for them. Moses speaks to them for God. Moses leads them. And and all the while, God is promising to take them. Where's he going to take them? To the promised land. It sounds good. The land of milk and honey, where they would experience the enjoyment of God and his goodness together. So sets salvation from slavery to the promised land. But what's in the middle between salvation and the promised land? This is the wilderness. It's suffering. It's a test. It's difficulty. And right there in the midst of that suffering... God brings them to a high mountain. And there, you you know what he does? He lets them see. You know, almost all the time, even in the Bible, you only see God in the evidences of what he has done or said. But a lot of times the scriptures will say something like, no one can see God. Not, Not all the way, not fully, not completely, no way. But every once in a while, he does make himself, in a way, right, seeable to the senses. And here in Exodus 19 and following, you, you have one of those moments. It, it, it almost always seemed to involve just overwhelming light. It's expressing something to you about God's character. He's called consuming fire. There's clouds, there's lightning, trembling. And by the way, the people are not like, Oh, cool. Can I borrow your binoculars? Yeah. Wow. No. 
What was it like for them? Do you know? Look at Exodus 20, verse 18. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. And there was all these rules about boundaries. So there's that tension. In one sense, we God comes to be with us. He's brought us to the mountain to be with us. And yet in another sense, you can't come close. Why? Because when sinful people come close to holiness, it undoes them. It would kill them. You cannot handle the holiness of God. So here's that tension of the biblical storyline. The one thing I most need is the thing I didn't want and now I can't have on my own. I didn't, I didn't want to know God and his holiness. I rebelled, I sinned, and now I'm guilty. And so the one thing I most need to be with God and see him and rejoice in his holiness is the, is the one thing I can't have because if, if I went full in, it would obliterate me in his just wrath. This horrible tension, how will it be resolved? Well, looking at our account in Mark, you can see how Jesus is kind of replaying this story, can't you? The talk of suffering. You go up on a mountain. Brilliant light. Trembling with fear. Even Moses is there. And according to Luke's account of the same story, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, you know what they're talking about? They're talking about the Exodus. It's a replay of that first story. That's the background we need to see. Now we get into the main idea, who Jesus is. So first we have this pattern, right? Salvation, wilderness, on the way to the promised land, but in the wilderness, you get to see. Now, verse two, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark tells us Jesus is transfigured. And the root of the Greek word, it's where we get our word metamorphosis. Radically transformed. Still the same and yet incredibly different. And we just remember every day of Jesus' life ever since he was born, how does he look? How does Jesus look? Is his hair always perfect? Is he Caucasian? Is he beautiful? Does he glow? No, if you saw a crowd and Jesus was in it, the only way you'd know it was Jesus was by hearing him speak or watching him do miracles. There's nothing notable about his physical appearance. He's normal. He's truly human. But yet on this day, he wants to show his disciples something. Yeah, it's really true. And he flexes in a way his divine glory. Jesus is one person with two natures, and those natures do not bleed. He is totally, completely, absolutely human. He sleeps. He gets tired. He eats. And he has eternally been and will eternally be the glorious Son of God, one with the Father. And Jesus here in this moment says, I'll let you see just a little bit. And you, you can tell even Mark's Mark doesn't know how to say what, he, what Peter told him he saw. There's not words for it. Like, I mean, his, his clothes were white. How white? I don't know. Like, no, no bleacher on earth could do this. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. So we're in Southern California. We know what this can be like. Sometimes the brightness even on a cloudy day, you can't look. Definitely don't look in the middle of the day. You can't see it. It's, it's too much. That's what Jesus was like. I can't handle it. And it's, you get the sense Mark, Mark feels his words just aren't enough. And we've all been there in small ways, right? You, you've seen something in nature 
a sunset or someplace you went, something beautiful, right? And you got out your iPhone and, you know, you took a picture. And then later when you got home, you looked at your picture and you're like, sort of. You try to tell somebody about it? You ever try to tell somebody about the most beautiful thing you ever saw? You know, it's really challenging for some of us. It was so cool. <laughs> it was awesome. And you know, you know what we say? You had to be there. It's too much. I don't know what to say. I can't describe it. You had to be there. That's exactly what Mark is telling you because that's exactly what Peter told Mark. You had to be there. And, and friends, if, if you're feeling a little cynical and you're like, really, I'm supposed to believe Jesus started glowing on a mountain? Well, I can see how it's hard to believe. But just notice something. Um, if Mark is truly writing Peter's account, has Peter been honest with you about himself? Peter's about to show you again that even in this moment, he was a blubbering idiot. There's, there's no filter on, well, you know, Peter ended up leading the church, so maybe we should erase some of these things that make him look so foolish. The text doesn't do that at all. Absolutely honest with you about how one of the main leaders of the church was deeply flawed. So there's honesty here. Look what Peter even writes later in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's about to meet his end by this point, and it's going to be, church history tells us, being crucified upside down. Look what's on Peter's mind that stuck with him his whole life. 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him, where? On the holy mountain. I'm telling you, that's what we saw. We saw him. What does this mean? Well, you know, you read that Exodus story. Moses goes up on the mountain to be with God, and the text tells you it's kind of strange, right? His face is actually glowing with a reflection of the glory of God that he saw. And yet it was a reflection, and it faded away. This is different. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He is emanating the glory of God. That's because he is the eternal son of God and he is majestically glorious. He's overwhelming. He's, he's beyond words. And just like those disciples, when they saw a glimpse of it, they fell on their face and they trembled. That's what we would do if we could see Jesus right now. Be overwhelming. Hebrews 1.3 says, he, and this is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all of us, no matter how respectful of Jesus we are, we're still not in as much in awe as we should be. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Gravity is fine-tuned by the word of his power. All the stars are in the right place by the word of his power. The earth rotates by the word of his power. You're breathing right now by the word of his power. Overwhelming, because he's the son of God. Do you see him that way? Do you know he's far more than a prophet or a good teacher? I hope you see him that way. If you do, how should you respond to him? And how would seeing him in that way help you in suffering? That's, that's the question I think we're supposed to ponder. How does seeing Jesus in that way help you in suffering? I don't know about you, but when I have suffering, and I know I haven't suffered very much at all compared to some of you, but when, when I have suffering, 
uh, there's part of me that almost doesn't want to look at Jesus at first. I want to look at myself and my situation, and I want to roll in on it. Isn't there a strange and twisted joy in self-pity? I, I want to roll in on it, and almost thinking of Jesus like, no, I'm too, too much suffering. And yet, and yet Jesus is like in the midst of this conversation on suffering. He's like flexing his glory to their face. Look at me and who I am in suffering. How would that help you? Well, I, I bet you could come up with a humongous list. But here's the text that my mind was drawn to. Look at Jesus' prayer in John 17. It fits with so many of the themes of this text. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see the divine glory of Jesus in this verse? He's been loved by the Father for eternity past. He's the Son of God. Do you see his role as Savior in Christ? The Father has given people to Jesus to save. But what is Jesus' desire for them? What's his prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, this is what I want. What did he pray for for you? He prayed that you would be with him. And he prayed that you would see what? His glory. That you'd see his glory. See, the, the first thing to remember is Jesus became human to resolve this tension. I need to see and be in the, the glorious presence of God. And yet on my own, I can't. And Jesus took on flesh and he suffered for us to bridge that gap. So that now, in him, you are welcome to come and see with no fear, no terror, no dread. You can enjoy the pure happiness and the unconditional love, the pure happiness of the unconditional love forever. Jesus' goal is to bring you to the mountain and let you see. No matter what suffering comes your way, this is his unstoppable purpose for your life. What does that do for you? I think it at least gives you hope. It at least let you, it lets you see farther than just yourself. It lets you see God's love and his plan for you for all time. And it latches you on to the one who suffered first and was victorious in suffering. You find your hope in him. You need to see who Jesus is. Second, you need to see that the cross is the plan. So Jesus is radiating on this mountain. Verse four, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And, you know, you try to imagine this moment. One of my questions is, I don't know if you're, on my wavelength, it's pretty low wavelength. One of my questions is, how do they know it's Elijah and Moses? You know, do they have name tags, right? <laughs> Elijah. How do you know? Why do I ask questions like that? I don't know. But here's how they know. They know because they get to listen in on the discussion. Elijah and Moses came to talk with Jesus. Look at Luke 9:30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And guess what the Greek word for departure is? Exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. What? Moses and Elijah make the trip to talk with Jesus about the exodus he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, what is it? Remember, exodus is deliverance from slavery to freedom. And in the end, it's supposed to take you to the promised land. 
And so we're just taken aback about how the entire storyline of the Bible points to this. What's the ultimate slavery? It's the penalty and power of our sin. The power of our sin. We don't like God or his ways. We're inclined against him. The penalty of our sin. We deserve his wrath. And then what's the departure? What's the exodus? It's his cross and his resurrection. And through faith in him, we are set free. We're set free from the penalty of sin. We've been made righteous. We're forgiven. There's no condemnation, no longer guilty. And we're set free from the power of sin. We have hearts and minds changed to love God and his ways. And Moses and Elijah came to talk about this. This is what it's been all about the entire time. There's so many fun things to imagine. You remember how Elijah just longed for the people of God to be changed, and he never really got to see it. And now he's here, and he gets to see what's going to really change God's people. Or Moses, you remember? He longed to go to the promised land and see it. He wasn't allowed to. And now, where is he standing? He's in the promised land, and they're both looking to Jesus, the one who fulfills it all, makes it all come to pass. The cross has always been the plan. It's it's not God catching up with things. It's not God trying to adjust on the fly. How does this help us in our suffering? Well, suffering can seem chaotic and meaningless, can it? Oh, so chaotic and so meaningless. Especially when there's injustice from others. And you, you think of Jesus' life, unjustly betrayed by a friend, slandered, unjustly tried, tortured, murdered, all by just the tyrants of his world. And it looks like they're in control. It looks like that chaotic meaninglessness owns the story. And yet, we see here the cross is not some accident, and Jesus will not be staying in the grave. He'll suffer. He won't suffer forever. He's going to rise from the dead. Suffering is not the final word. How does that help us in our suffering? Well, look at 2 Timothy 2.11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, what will happen? We also will what? Live with him. If we endure, endure. Friends, why do you have to endure? Nobody says, I had to endure eating ice cream. I had to endure sushi. I had to endure this vacation. No. What do we endure? Suffering. Little tiny suffering, epic suffering. If we endure... We will reign with him. With Jesus, it's cross before the crown. His faithful suffering meant resurrection. With his disciples, it's cross before the crown. And enduring with him leads to resurrection. Look what Paul says in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Now, you tell me the next part because it's almost hard to believe. The sufferings of this present time are what? Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Paul's not, he's not living the high life, taking it easy. He's not just on perpetual cruises throughout the Mediterranean. He has deeply suffered, deeply suffered. And the whole package, hatred, rejection, poverty, torture, attempted murder, the whole package he has suffered. And look what he says. There's going to be glory we are going to see that's going to make the worst suffering God's people have ever gone through be like, kind of doesn't really compare to how awesome we have it is now. And when you're in the middle of suffering, that is hard to believe, and you almost don't want to hear it because suffering, it can hurt oh so bad. And yet at one point, at some point, You've got to hear, hey, friends, the glory that's coming will honestly make your suffering look like almost nothing. We're not saying that your suffering wasn't deep or terrible or that it was nothing. 
That's not what we're saying. We're saying the glory that's coming is so fantastic that its majesty makes that suffering, no matter how great it was, look like almost nothing. Talk about perspective on suffering. We have to remember that our life in this world is not our ultimate life. Did you know that? And we have, a, here's a warning for all of us. If life in this world is everything, guess what's going to happen to you? You are going to lose everything. You're going to be obliterated by suffering. What do you value in this life that you won't one day lose? From dust you are, to dust you shall return. And the Psalms say, give us a heart of wisdom. Help us number our days. You have to see and embrace the reality of suffering and death in order to live a thriving, peaceful, joyful life. You have to know that if this world is all you have, you're going to lose everything. But what if this life is just on the way to everything? And part of the process to get you to everything, everything which you will never lose and have forever in increasing measure. Doesn't that change your perspective on suffering? Uh, people have done incredible things when they know they have hope that it ends and it leads to something even better. Without hope, we crumble. With hope like this, we can keep going. Because we see that the cross was the plan. And after the cross comes resurrection. We see Jesus is truly God. We see his cross is always the plan. We also see, need to see his loving authority. So look at verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What are we supposed to do with that? And Mark tells us, well, don't worry about it too much. Because in verse 6, he says he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. <laughs> so, you know, it is a human thing, right? Have you ever done this? I think I have. Sometimes we cope with fear with word salads. <laughs> I'm afraid, just words. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm just going to talk, right? And that's what Peter does here. But there is some, some agenda in this, I think. The Tabernacles looks, looks to the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates God's deliverance from Egypt. And I think what on, is on Peter's mind a little bit, he sees Elijah, he sees Moses. He's like, I was right. Jesus has come around. There doesn't need to be suffering. The victory is here. But not only that, he said three tabernacles. So who gets a tabernacle? Well, Elijah gets one. Moses gets one. Jesus gets one. He just put all three of them on the same plane. As if Jesus is on their level. And so it's actually kind of humorous to me in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 17, 5. Matthew writes, while Peter was still speaking... The glorious presence of God came down on the, on the mountain. So the, <laughs> Peter's just like, oh, Jesus is so great, and I just really appreciate all the tabernacles, and I just want you to know you're a great teacher, and bleh, words, and all of a sudden the presence of God comes, they fall on their face, and it's as if the Father says in a way only he can say, shut your mouth, Peter. <laughs> Stop talking, Peter. And what does the Father say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Far greater than Moses or Elijah. Listen to Jesus. And Peter, stop insisting on being your own authority, especially on suffering. Stop being your own authority, especially on your view of Jesus' suffering and your own suffering. So, some of us, we need, to, we need to meditate on this. We want to be our own authority on understanding the what and why of suffering. And the Father says, especially in this context of suffering, 
Who do we need to listen to? Listen to him. Listen to him. You guys, you'll run into a wall if you try to figure out all the what's and why's of every detail of our suffering. There's great principles in the Bible that give us wisdom. Let's, let's lean into those for sure. But you won't know all the what and the why. There's someone who does. He's good for it. Listen to him. And listen, he's the beloved son. Well, all of a sudden, you know, following our storyline here, all, all of a sudden there's nobody left but Jesus, and Jesus is looking like Jesus again. The, the glory revealed is now hidden again. And they start walking down the mountain, and they want to talk about Elijah, all these disciples. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until he'd risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. It means he's going to die. But they're like, no, no, no suffering. Look, look at their agenda, verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? A couple of commentators I read said, they're still trying to push the glory without the cross angle. Here's why. Malachi 4.5, look what it said. It's a, a promise from God. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So somehow when Elijah comes, what's next? The day of the Lord. He defeats all our enemies. We enjoy the glorious kingdom. And they're like, we just saw Elijah. Day of the Lord's coming. There doesn't need to be any suffering. Look what Jesus says, verse 12. Jesus said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I feel, I feel like the undertow here is, did you read Psalm 22? Did you read Isaiah 53? Verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. What does that mean? Who plays the role of Elijah according to the beginning of Mark? It's John the Baptist. He's the forerunner who came before the Lord came. And what did they do with John the Baptist? They arrested him, they treated him like garbage, they threw him in a cell. And then a lady with too much power asked for his head on a platter. And Herod did it for her. We saw Elijah. The kingdom must be here. Victory. And Jesus is like, yeah, Elijah got his head cut off. The disciples don't want to hear it. What's Jesus insisting on? Cross before the crown. But what about Elijah? Yeah, even with Elijah. Cross before the crown. And the Son of Man will suffer as well. How does it help you in suffering to submit to Jesus as your authority? Well, I think it, uh, there's one key word in here that's really important. He's the beloved Son. What does beloved mean? The Father loves His Son and has from all eternity. And the beloved son is full of love for his people. Jesus is loved and he loves. Listen, if you insist on the Christian life not having any suffering, and there's a lot of teachers on TV who make a lot of money from this very message, you will be broken beyond repair. You won't have the strength you need. You might even lose your faith and you'll make up your own savior in your own story. Listen, does the Father love Jesus? You have no idea, right, how much the Father loves Jesus. Did Jesus suffer? Is it possible that God allows suffering in the lives of people he loves very dearly? Does your suffering mean that God does not love you? No. No. Does it mean he doesn't have a plan? No. If you want to know God's love for you, don't just look at your circumstances. There are people under the wrath of God who have a far easier life than you do right now. 
And there are people God loves so very dearly who have a way more difficult life than you do right now. It's not the whole story. You want proof of God's love? Where is it, church? God proves his love for us in this. What? Christ died for us. God proved to me you love me. Okay, I gave my son for you while you hated me. That's the proof. So the father loves Jesus and Jesus suffered. Not only that, so we need to submit to that authority, that idea. Number two, Jesus is worthy of love and praise. And he still suffered. So I guess here's what I want to suggest. If Jesus suffered for me, a sinner who deserves God's wrath, can I say that God is wrong to allow suffering to happen in my life? Can I say, oh, you could do it to him, the one who's worthy of all praise and glory forever, but you can't do it to me, the one who actually deserves your eternal wrath? Can I say that? And yet my heart wants to say it sometimes. I need to submit to Jesus' authority. He will give us crosses. So a whole variety of those, from small to great, he will give them. He has every right to ask you to carry it. And he will give you every strength as you do. We need to submit to that authority. And then don't forget this. Jesus is loved and he loves. The Bible tells us he has great sympathy and compassion for us. He knows, he cares. And here's this great promise, right? Let's remember it again, Romans 8, 28. And we know. What do we know, church? For those who love God, what's he doing? All things. Just pause for a second. All what does the word all mean in context? All. <laughs> all things work together for good. Not, not all things are good. That's not what we're saying. No. But all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We need that perspective in suffering to submit to the ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. Finally, the last point, we'll finish with this. I want you to see just one example of the power of the kingdom shown in suffering. Because I think this text is saying you need to see these things to endure through suffering the way God wants. Look at Romans 8, 16 to 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Let's pause there for a minute. If you trusted yourself to Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit's work in your mind and your heart, and as you trust the word of God, you believe these promises, as we come together to church, as we cling to these things, what do we know? What does the Spirit tell us? Who are we? End of verse 16. We're children of God. How does he feel about your church? Loves you. We're children of God. And if children, what else are we? We're heirs. What does that mean? We inherit the kingdom. Say you had a really hard year financially. Some of you are like, amen, okay? At the, at the end of that year, you knew uh, you were inheriting $30 million. How hard would that hard year be? You'd be like, eh, I can make it through this because good times are coming. That's actually a, a pitiful picture of the actuality of your life. You're going to inherit God and his kingdom forever. You're so ridiculously wealthy in all things that wealth can be. You have God himself and all that he is. But look at this next phrase, verse 17. We're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Next three words. We don't want to remember this. So we're, we're going to say it all together. What are the three words right after the word Christ? Provided we suffer. Let's keep going. Two more. With him. Provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer 
with him. What's on the way to the inheritance? Provided we suffer with him. But the key here is not the word suffer. The key is the two words with him. With him. Don't call it everybody suffers somehow. Everybody. But for Christians, no, this, this is it. We suffer with him. So we play that game. We suffer with him. Think of the word with. What does that mean? He's here with. And then we think of the other, other way to emphasize it. We suffer with him. Who is he? Who is he? Well, that's what you needed to see on the mountain. He's the glorious son of God who went to the cross and he's, a tr he's a, the authority you can trust in your suffering because he's gonna take you to himself with him. Church, he's with you. So we wanna be willing to suffer by dying to our disobedience. Isn't that a suffering? Do it with him because you know he's been tempted like you yet without sin and he's your strength. We wanna be willing to suffer by giving ourselves up in love to others. Sometimes repeated deeds of love can be tedious and horrible sufferings. Does Jesus know what it's like to sacrifice to love? He's with you. He'll be your motivation. Sometimes we suffer by trusting his sovereign hand when our life circumstances fall apart. When there's injustice, all of the above, suffer with him. Does Jesus know injustice, suffering, grief? He does. He will be your comfort. Suffer with him. Sometimes we suffer when the world doesn't like it that we're Christians who believe the Bible. So we suffer with him. He knows what it's like to be hated and love his enemy. He will be our joy. We suffer with him. That's kingdom power in suffering. The Christ, the Son of God, suffered for us to bring us to glory. We need to see him. We need to see what he's done, what he will do. And he's shown us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's no one like you. You endure with blubbering disciples like Peter and like me and like us. And Lord, we waver so much in difficulty and suffering. Even the smallest things can throw us for a loop, can have us coming undone. Help us see you. Help us see you. See your glory as the son of God who's gonna bring us before your very face. Help us see that the cross is the plan and you went to it for us. You died, you rose. If we endure with you, we'll reign with you. Help us to submit to your loving authority let us no longer strive to be the authority on our sufferings, but let us look to you, Lord. And may we, on this path to our inheritance, may we lean into suffering with you. In the little sufferings, in the big sufferings, let us lean on our King, the Christ, the Son of God. We pray this in his name, amen.